good to see you. I was reminded uh, of just how, you know, all the ministries that are a part of this body, including A-Team, which is now celebrating 40 years, shape our life together. They shape who we are, how we, how we interact with one another as a church. They bring things to bear in the life of the body, and I was reminded of that today. Uh, Sunny, who's been part of A-Team, she just started coming in August. Sunny, are you in here for this service? She came up with Dave last service. She may not be in uh, right now. But uh, Sandy and I had not met before, so I met her today. She said, oh, I started coming in August, and she just said, welcome to church, glad you're here. And she greeted me and welcomed me in. And that's one of the things that A-Team does, is they bring a sense of hospitality and welcome, and one of the things that reminded me is, I hope, you, I hope you experienced that today. Hope as you came in here today, that someone said, maybe someone sitting right next to you, not just someone with a green shirt or you know, a West Shore emblem on their shirt, they just said, hey, I haven't met you before, what's your name? First time, been here a while, and just welcomed you in. We want this to be a place where you know through the, through the really the arms and the hands of others saying, like, we see you, we're glad you're here, that you're reminded that God knows you're here and that he's prepared this space for you. That's what really what hospitality is all about. It's preparing us a place, a space for folks that they feel welcomed into so that they are reminded of the welcoming presence of God and that you're not here by accident. It's not a surprise to God that you are here today, whether it's like you happened in uh, just because for the first time in years and years or never before, you thought, I, I'm gonna drive church or whether you've been here a thousand times, that God knows you're here and he wants to meet you in this place and speak to you and work in your life. And so A-Team helps us be that kind of a body. They remind us of that, right? And so let's be like that, yes? Let's take their lead and let's be more and more like that. So, well, uh, somebody asked me, earlier, uh, we're gonna be in Mark chapter five, by the way, so if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter five. And uh, somebody asked me, said, do you have any more sort of dramatic intros for us? If you were here last week, we you know, decapitated a pinata donkey uh, with candy flying everywhere. And I said, I have nothing exciting today. I just have, I'm just gonna talk about the definition of a word, yay. So, uh, so but I, the word that I wanna talk about to kind of intro the sermon today is the word compassion. And it's not actually a word that's gonna be in our text today. It runs throughout the Gospel of Mark, actually. We'll see it in next week's uh, text as we look at Jesus feeding the 5,000, where it says he looked at the 5,000 folks or, and said, I have compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, and in English, when we translate that word or when we define that word, compassion, what we, a real simple definition is basically to, um, to share the pain of someone else, to see that someone's in pain and to share that pain, to you know, kind of move towards them in that pain. That's a pretty simple idea of what we mean in English when we say I'm, I'm moved by someone else's pain. I react to it in such a way that I kind of share it with them. That's a decent definition of compassion, yes? The biblical definition of compassion is similar but, a li- but has a little bit of difference, particularly when we talk about God being full of compassion, which is what our text today is really here to show us, that God shows us his compassion through the work of Jesus. And as a result, my hope is that we grow in both believing that God has compassion for us and also that we grow in in giving compassion to others. The biblical word, at least in the New Testament for compassion, is an interesting word. It's kind of a a clunky word. It's not the prettiest of words. It's splanknizomai. Not a super pretty word, right, for a very pretty thing. Uh, compassion, splanknizomai actually means, and what it refers to is not real pretty either. It's a reference to the bowels. The word is rooted in the word for the inner bowels of a person. You think, well, what on earth? How does that word become compassion? Well, think about it for a moment. The reason that word is then 
as its root becomes to, you know, gets expanded upon and becomes to mean compassion is because to say that God has compassion or to say that you have compassion is to be moved deep within the heart of a person. Within the depths of a person, there's an experience of care and love and tenderness that someone has, and that's compassion. So when the scriptures say that Jesus or God has compassion, they're saying there's a depth within the depths of God. Now, I need you to think about that because that's different than the depths of a person. You understand that, right? Say at the very depth of who God is, there is care. There's tenderness, particularly in, in your pain. Now, where there is a difference is that as humans, we see someone in pain and we then respond to that pain, and that is compassion. We feel then, we have a feeling where when our hearts are right, you know, and not, not untender, we feel compassion when we see pain. And we didn't have that compassion before, but, but now we have it. But with God, it is different because God does not feel compassion. It's not a feeling of God. It's an attribute of God. Therefore, we say God does not feel compassion. God is compassion. And as with all his attributes, we could not say that God was full of compassion if he didn't tell us himself, but he tells us again and again, he's full of love, he is full of compassion, he is these things, and he is always these things, so that God is not responsive in his compassion, he is a being that is full of compassion at all times perfectly, so that when he encounters us in his pain, it's what we call the impassibility of God, these, this great doctrine of the immutability and impassibility of God. And I wanna make sure we understand it correctly because the immutability of God means that God does not change. There's no shifting shadow with God. He is perfection at all times. He never grows or shrinks in any way in any of his attributes, amen? This is the nature of God. And related to that then is the impassibility of God, which is to say God does not experience emotional rising and falling based upon the circumstances of his children or the circumstances of the world. God does not experience that fluctuation of emotion because he is always perfectly all the things that he is and he is never surprised by anything that takes place. So that when you or or I suffer, God meets us with compassion. This is not to say that God is uncaring or indifferent towards us. We see the difference, yes? The beauty of the impassibility of God is that God's compassion never wanes because he is always perfectly compassionate because it is his attribute and he is never less than what he is. He marries all of his attributes perfectly at all times. So the reason I say that, because I want you to understand that with God, his compassion is different. You can count on it because it flows out of his very nature. It is who he is. It is not a rising and falling feeling. It's not a responsive thing with God as it is with us. So that when we suffer, when we're in pain, when we're in trial, we experience God's attribute of compassion coming to us, particularly in his son, Jesus Christ, and through his son, Jesus Christ. We experience it and we receive it as if in that moment, God is feeling something that we need and granting it to us but it's not because the emotional state of God has fluctuated at all. He is only being who he is and then allowing us the experience of that as his creatures, amen? That's the beauty of our God. So what I wanna do today is I wanna show you the compassion of God in the works of Jesus. And I already told you, I, I, you know, the spoiler alert, here's my hope, that you would know how great God's compassion is for you. And you have an experience of that today. 
of that attribute of God, and then that you and I would, would grow more full of compassion for one another and for our neighbors. So if you don't want that, now's the time to leave. Okay, I hope no one gets up. That would really, <laughs> ugh. We love you, we love you. Don't leave. So I just wanna, I think, I think I have five things here that I wanna show you about God's compassion. Let me just read this story. I'm just gonna read it beginning to end. It's a little bit longer. It's a bit of a sandwich story where we get two stories in one and both of them are this deep, rich expression of the compassion of God. So let's enter into the story together, shall we? Mark chapter five, verse 21 begins this way. Remember, he's right on the heels now of healing the demoniac, driving out the, the legion of demons that had oppressed that man on one side of the sea, now he sails back to the other side and here's what happens next. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, hold on, pause here, because the way, the tone that you think are put into these next words matters a lot. Now listen, I, I like to, my friend uses the term uh, a little sanctified imagination, okay? What he means by that is we don't always know, like the tone is not told to us here, we gotta use context and the clues around it, and I'll show you some of those clues later, that I don't believe these next words are spoken. Who touched me? Who touched my garment? Now, let's see if I can do better than that, okay? Here's how I think they sounded, again, a little sanctified imagination, and I practice this like, I practice this. <clears throat> I'm not an actor. Perhaps. Who touched my garment? Because he's inviting a conversation that's about to happen. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, who touched me? maybe laughing at him a little bit. And he looked around to see who had done it, like just ignoring the disciples, like, yeah, okay. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. That's probably a good idea, huh? And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, 
Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. I have to believe that James worked that in with Mark. Could you call John my brother, please? They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand He said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, or I'll tell you this, it's also a pet name that means little lamb. Little lamb, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. I mean, that's the understatement of the year. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. It's a beautiful set of stories, yeah? I'm just reading it. You get a sense of the compassion of God. I wanna see if I can't draw out for you you five things about the compassion of God that might help you then believe that God has that compassion towards you um, and that he wants to grow that heart in you for others. So let's just kind of move through those and we'll, we'll hit back elements of the story as we do that. So the first thing I want you to see is that our desperation isn't an imposition to God. That's the first thing I, I want you to believe in terms of receiving God's compassion. Our desperate state, when we feel desperate and in need, that God is not off-put by that. He's not imposed upon by that. Now, Here's what I want you to see. There's a great sense of desperation in this text, in these stories. The first thing we see is Jairus showing up and he arrives on the scene right as Jesus is getting out of the boat. He's rushing up to him, picture the scene. Jesus has barely gotten out of the boat. Same way with the demoniac. He's barely gotten out of the boat and the demoniac is rushing at him. Now he's just barely gotten out of the boat here on the other side of the lake and here comes Jairus and he's almost sprinting. And what does it say Jairus does? He falls at the feet of Jesus, which is exactly what the demoniac did. The same desperation, the same act of desperation. One man does not fall at another man's feet unless he's desperate. And so he falls at the feet of Jesus and he says, my little girl, my my cherished little girl. And he uses a colloquialism there when it says she's at the point of death. It means she's literally, the way you would, you would use use a colloquialism to paint a picture, right? Because you want people to feel what you're saying. So you use those kinds of phrases. And he says a phrase that in the original language essentially means she's at death's doorstep. He's painting a picture as if she is, she herself is knocking on the door of death and about to go through that door. And he's begging Jesus, please come now and touch her and you can heal her. He's desperate. Do you see that? And the Mark, the way he tells the story, now we've, we've talked about how Mark is, he's kind of short on words. He likes to just get to the point and say what he means. And I mean, I'm a fan, okay? And, but don't just hear Mark's brevity here as Mark being Mark. Recognize that it's intentional in the story when the next phrase is, and he went with him. And he went with him. It's as if to say, what else would he do? 
Of course this is what Jesus would do. No duh is kind of the point that Mark is making. The desperation of Jairus is not gonna get a stiff arm from Jesus. It's not gonna be, I got other things to do. Why are you imposing upon me? Your neediness is even a little off-putting, perhaps, Jairus. Take it easy. Don't be so desperate. This is awkward. You've fallen at my feet. None of that. And he went with him. When you read that, what you're supposed to go is like, this is Jesus going, of course, this is who I am. This is what I do. I'm gonna immediately go with you because you've called upon me and I'm not put out by that. Yes? Now turn to the woman because the same level of desperation. Now, we need to understand a little Old Testament context because she's, been, she's had this bleeding problem now for 12 years, which means that under Old Testament law, she's been ritually unclean for 12 years years, which means she's cut off from worship in the temple. She's cut off from her family and her friends that if they were to touch her, they then become unclean, an unclean person in contact with another unclean, another person makes them unclean. So now they have to go through a ritual process of purification or they remain cut off from temple worship and from the people. So this uncleanness that this woman is experiencing is devastating. And then we're told she spent every penny she has trying to get better. And she is not any better. And she suffered greatly at the hands of the people who were trying to help her. It's not, the, the intention there is not to say that they had done something wrong or evil. They're trying, but they can't accomplish anything useful, these physicians or these doctors. It's beyond their ability. It's beyond their capacity. And she is in a desperate, would you be desperate if that was your situation? Yeah, exactly right. She's desperate. And again, Jesus' response is not, who touched my garments? You better back up. What do you think you're doing? Now, I, I want you to understand something about the Old Testament law. We need to understand, because you hear that and you go, well, why would God make a law like that? Like, why would he have someone be ritually unclean because they're bleeding and therefore like cut off in all these ways? You need to remember the purpose of the law itself. Paul says in the New Testament, the primary purpose of the law, the great purpose of the law, among with a couple other purposes as well, but, but the primary one in the big story of God is that the law is there to trap us under our sin. It's not there so that we would say, I can do all these things and get myself right with God. The law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the, the sacrificial law, they're all there to remind us that we are sinners who cannot get right with God on our own and we are trapped underneath our own inability to be righteous and the law shows us that because when I come to it, I say, I can never keep this. I might be able to do it on the surface for a while, but in my heart, I know I haven't kept it and as a result, I recognize I'm condemned that an unholy me can't go before a holy and righteous him and I need someone to save me. So in that way, this woman, she represents all of us. The unclean woman, the unholy woman in the presence of a holy God. And Jesus' healing of her, the fact that when she touches him, he doesn't become unclean, she becomes clean, is the reminder that he and he alone is the one who can make you and I clean. We are just like her. We are unclean and incapable of approaching a holy God but God has made us clean in Jesus. If you go to pray this afternoon, tonight before you go to bed, when you wake up in the morning and go to the scriptures and you pray, the fact that you can do that without ceremonial washings and cleansings and processes and rituals and all these other things, the reason you can just sit down in chair, open your scriptures and go, God, I'm here to meet with you, 
is because Jesus makes the unclean clean. It's amazing. We have no right to approach God this way. That's how merciful and full of compassion and full of power to make whole and holy he is. So in understanding that now, we see the desperate nature of these two folks. They're both desperate. They're both in dire straits. They've both, at the end of all the resources, they have nothing left and they fall at the feet of Jesus and they take different approaches. But the thing I want you to see, which perhaps for you is not an issue, but I find again and again, and I find it in myself, so I'll be very honest with you, that sometimes people's neediness is off-putting. Have you ever felt when someone just feels like they just need too much or they're maybe a little what we might call an extra grace person? We go, I gotta have a little extra, I gotta summon up a little extra grace here um, because this person is awkward or difficult or defiant or whatever it is, that sense of like neediness coming towards us often in us makes us go, ugh. But God's not like that. And that's what he's showing us about his compassion. God doesn't back up and go, oh, this is awkward. I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life, and hopefully I will not be alone, okay? But I remember uh, I, I discipled a kid when I was doing youth ministry years and years ago. He was a ninth grade boy, and ninth grade boys are often really good at keeping up a very, like, a facade of being cool, yes? I mean, at all costs, let's be cool, all right? And so this, like, showing of need or showing of emotion is not a real cool thing to do when you are a ninth grade boy. And Sam, is this young man's name, had some different challenges he had endured and, and, and had that caused him to be somewhat awkward with his peers pretty regularly, but also he just let his neediness out. So that I would meet with him every week, and like the very first time, I mean, he would always do one of two things. He would either say, you don't actually love me, so that I would have to say, no, I really do. Or he would say, tell me you love me, which is awkward, yes? You, I would always feel the first like two, three times that happened, I remember being like, I mean, he's like trying to manipulate me to get me to say I love you. This neediness is just pouring over and it feels so awkward and odd to me. And then God took me aside and he said, Trent, all he's asking you is the same thing you ask me all the time. Would you be filled with my compassion, please? Who cares if it's awkward or needing? Just respond, I love you. Sam, I love you, and the Lord loves you. Sam, I love you, and the Lord loves you. Week after week after week after week. I can't remember how long we met. It might have been a year or more. Sam, I love you, and the Lord loves you. And every week, do you, do you actually love me? Sam, I love you, and the Lord loves you. Another week. I mean, really, do you, re- do you really love me? Sam, I love you and the Lord loves you. Again, and again, and again. And friends, that's not, I don't react that way in my flesh. But it reminded me that this is God is not put off by our desperateness, yes? Can we remember that? Yeah. So the, here's the next thing we see in the compassion of God is that our guilt Our guilt doesn't dry up God's compassion. Now, here's what I need to say very quickly and very clearly. The text does not suggest in any way that this woman's problem is a result of some specific sin 
in her life, whether Jairus' daughter is, you know, her situation of being at death's door is in any way related to any sin in their life. But what the text does teach us is that death exists and disease exists because we as a human race are guilty. Because there is a guilt that we bear that has brought sin into the world. We are a part of a rebellious race, yes? That's a good theology of sin. And we inherit that guilt. We inherit that guilt as just by nature of being human. And because of that then, that's what verse 26 is getting at. There is death and decay in the world, all things moving in that direction. Unless God intervenes, that's where all things go. All things move towards death and decay because of sin's presence in the world and the guilt of our race as the pinnacle of all creation. So when it says the doctors had tried everything they knew how to do, she'd spend all her money, what they're saying is unless God intervenes through the work of the hands of the doctors, nothing will be produced. It's not a critique of the doctors. It's just a reality check of the state of the world. This is what happens. And here's what might happen is that you and I from time to time might think because we're guilty before a holy God, surely there are times where he would look down and go, what you're dealing with is your own fault. That's on you. And not feel any compassion and just go, maybe when you get yourself a little bit more together, then I will find some compassion in my heart for you. And this story is telling us the exact opposite of that that in spite of the desperate circumstances, in spite of the fact that these folks are experiencing this death and this decay, the compassion of God is there, ready, and meeting them in that place. Isn't that wonderful? Our guilt does not dry up the compassion of God. Now, let's ask a question about that by way of application. How do I respond then when someone else's situation is brought about by a bad decision, a bad choice, something they're guilty of? Do I demonstrate the heart of God, not in a denial of truth or in a, that doesn't preclude discipline when discipline is right and good. The discipline of God is brought about in his compassion, yes? That's what Hebrews tells us. A good father disciplines the child he loves. God does that. Compassion and discipline are not opposites. They go together. They're good friends. Okay, but how do I respond? Let's ask ourselves this question. When someone in my life that I encounter finds themselves in dire circumstances because of a choice they have made, because of a a guilt that is upon them, or just because they're part of this fallen human race, just like you and me, how do I respond? Do I have that, well, you kinda deserve what you're getting. Is that what's in my heart or is what's in my heart to be full of compassion towards the suffering of some other image bearer or some brother or sister. Where should we begin? Where should we start? I pray with compassion, yes? That's the place to start. Then we can bring to bear the other aspects of how compassion gets lived out, whether there need to be boundaries or discipline in the name of love and in the exercise of compassion. Those things are appropriate, but we don't begin with a I told you so we begin with the compassionate heart of God. Next thing we see about the compassion of God is that it's not just for certain types of people. Now, I know this one's gonna feel like the most patently obvious, but I don't think it's as obvious as you think it is, okay? So part of the, part of the point 
of this text is the contrast between Jairus and this woman. The woman remains unnamed, Jairus is named. He represents all the privilege and all the power in the society of the day. He's the synagogue ruler, which means he probably has money. Very, very probably he has money. He is certainly well known. He's a man of reputation. He's probably a good man, right? There's, he has every advantage that his society has to offer. And if you were in the ancient Near East and you were watching this story unfold, you would say, of course, Jairus is going to get the attention of Jesus because he's a man of good reputation. He's at the top of society. He's socioeconomically advantaged. He's in a good place. And of course, God's compassion can be for him. And you might think to yourself, this woman, less so. She is unnamed, unknown. She is poor. She is not from the gender in the society that is advantaged, right? So everything about the story is, here's a person of great advantage, and here's a person of great disadvantage. Do you see the contrast between the two, yes? And so the expectation might have been in the ancient Near East, well, Jairus is gonna get the attention and, and perhaps the woman is gonna get missed, right? Might have been the assumption. In our day and age, we might make the opposite assumption. We might go, man, God loves the poor, but I don't think he probably feels much for the rich. And the point of the story is to, to undo both of those mindsets. The point of the story, and I think it needs to be said, as obvious as it may seem, is that God's compassion is not reserved for the rich or the poor. It's not reserved for black or for white. It's not reserved for the socioeconomically advantaged or the disadvantaged. It's not reserved for Democrats or for Republicans. His compassion goes out to all types of people. Anyone who falls at the feet of Jesus experiences the compassion of God. In fact, the only way to not experience the compassion of God is to not come to Jesus, is to not fall at his feet. And even then, because it's his attribute, it's still in exercise. It's just not activated towards you in saving power until it comes to the person of Jesus when you fall at his feet. And I would beg you to fall at the feet of Jesus. He's the one that activates and brings the compassion of God to bear in such a way that you will be spared from the wrath of God, which is also one of his attributes that he never lets go of and exercises in perfect manner at all times. So, I, you know, I'm always tempted to say in our day and age because there's divisiveness and division, look. But I, was it any different 100 years ago? 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years? Probably not. But I will say in, in, in our day, in our time, there is a need to repeat this to ourselves. The compassion of God is not reserved for only certain types of people. And maybe to repeat to ourselves, the compassion of God is not reserved for only people like me. Maybe that's the way to remind ourselves of it. People who look like me, think like me. There's all manner of great discussions to have in disagreement with one another about the best way for a believer to approach the voting booth or the best way for a believer to, to think and approach righteousness at a societal level or to think about the way we practice things in our home. Or, the list goes on and on. And there's lots of great ground for us to have discussion about and say, I, I think I disagree with you. I think there's a better way over here. But please, can we begin with remembering that that person is not outside the compassion of God. It changes the nature of the conversation when we begin there. And it's an election year. So I'm begging you, full of the compassion. Have those conversations, but 
man. You know, the, one of the most disappointing, I didn't say this in the first service, and gosh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do it anyway. All right. Man, you know what disappointed me more than anything? It's not, it's not that believers went, you know what, I think I need a, a new church that think that where, because I really believe strongly this way about this issue during COVID and, you know, the last election. It, it, that doesn't bother me in the least because it, it makes total sense to me going, you know what, I think, I actually believe this is the best way to approach this and it's, it's probably best to maybe change churches as a result of that. That's, that's fine, that's fair, you know? And that, by the way, I'm not just talking about this church, I'm talking about across <laughs> the country, okay? What disappointed me was, was the absolute assault we made upon one another and the way we treated one another as if we were outside the blood of Christ and outside the love of Christ the cruelty that we could display towards one another was shocking. And as a shepherd, you wanna, you wanna know how many pastors stopped being pastors during that time? I don't think most of the time it's because they got attacked. I think it's because they couldn't bear to try to shepherd God's people through that anymore. They went, what good am I doing? What a waste of time. I've seen too many and talked to too many. It just breaks my heart. But we will not be like that. We will not be like that here. And if you need to depart from this place because you're, you are determined to be like that, we love you, go in peace. But we will not be like that. Okay? The compassion of Jesus is not reserved for people who are only like me. The next thing we see is that when God shows compassion to someone else, it doesn't mean he's forgotten me. You might need to write this one on the bathroom mirror. I want you to put yourself in Jairus' place now. Because I, I mean, I'm kind of going, I'm making light of it a little bit, but, but you need to feel the weight of this. Because imagine you're Jairus now, and you've come and you said, this is a time-sensitive matter. My daughter is going to die unless you show up now. And Jesus comes, and you're like, <gasps> and then he stops to deal with a problem that could be dealt with an hour later, two hours later. It's been going on for 12 years. Do we need to do this right now? Don't you imagine that if you're Jairus and you're standing there, that you are trying probably to summon up compassion, but you are thinking, you are killing my daughter. I would be very tempted to think that. My issue is time sensitive. Can, you, can we come back? Can we come back to her? And Jesus is unrushed. I mean, he is in no hurry. He pauses. Think about what he could do. The power could flow out from him. This woman could receive his healing, and he could just keep moving. He doesn't have to say anything. Nobody knows it happened. And we would just, this would be the Jairus story. And there'd be no woman because she would have been healed. No one would have known it. It would have been a, you know, kind of lost to the history books, so to speak, but Jesus would know it, and she would be better. Praise God. But he stops because he wants her to experience his compassion, so he engages with her. He touched my garments, inviting her in, right, and taking the time, and then the next sentence is, his servants show up and say, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's gone. I don't know, I think I would fall on the ground 
and be racked with sobs. I, I know if you're a parent, you get that. What, I mean, what else could you do? And, and just the devastation you would feel. But here's the beauty. I believe Jesus also wanted Jairus to see his compassion for the woman. He also is teaching Jairus, gonna teach something Jairus that we're gonna talk about in a moment about the, the degree of his power that Jairus does not understand that Jairus needs to see and exercise faith in. But friends, from this we can learn, we can remember that when God says, I'm pouring out my compassion over here and it's not on me in the way that I would hope, because he's giving it to someone else doesn't mean he's forgotten me. It doesn't mean that when I don't receive what I'm hoping for in the moment, and this other person does, that he's forgotten me. His compassion is sufficient for them and for me. I'm not in competition for it, yes? And I know it's so easy to feel jealous, isn't it? It's so easy to feel envious and jealous when someone else receives the thing I've been longing for, waiting for, or something different, but I need something and they're getting something. Why, God, are you giving them the thing they need and not giving me the thing I need? Have we felt this way before? We have to keep telling ourselves, he has not forgotten me because he's done something for them. This is an imperfect analogy, but my friend Brian Wallace um, used to have three boys. They're all grown now, but when they were young, they liked to drink milk at dinner, and they would set the three glasses on the table, and every dinner, every supper time, he would fill the glasses at three different levels. And they would say, I got, they got, da, 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 because if you have kids, you have also experienced that. Like, they line them up, is it exactly? Is it exactly? Hers is, yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness gracious. You're not even gonna drink it all. But he would intentionally do that because what he wanted, he says, God does not give us all the same things. God does not always give you what he gives him, what he gives him. And if you're gonna compare, you're gonna kill and steal your joy. There's enough, and here's the, here's the beauty, and again, I know it's an imperfect analogy, but they would finish their milk, and they say, there's as much milk as you want still in the fridge. Go get as much as you want. There is enough in God for all his kids. I thought that was a pretty good demonstration and reminder. Now, <clears throat> the last thing that we wanna look at is that God doesn't lack power, the power or the compassion that we need, and let's go back to the contrast between Jairus and this woman to kind of learn our, our last thing. And then I wanna talk about the obvious question that this text begs, which is what I was just talking about, is what do we do, or what do we make of, in, in this text, both people receive a healing work from God, but what if you're waiting on God to do something? What if God has not yet exercised his compassion to change your circumstances? What do we make of a compassionate God when our circumstances remain the difficult circumstances? And I'm gonna talk about that in just a moment. But what I want you to see is the contrast here when I say God does not lack the power, nor does he lack the compassion. And he's displaying that in Jesus. And I think that he's interacting with these two characters in the narrative because he wants through Jairus to show us that he does not lack any power, have faith in his power. And through the woman, that he does not lack any compassion. So come to him and have faith in both of these things, the fullness of his power and the fullness of his compassion. Now, no fault to either of them. Jairus has faith in the power of God to a, to a point. But when, so he comes to him and he says, 
please, my daughter, I need you. You can do something about it. And, and Jesus comes. But then when he learns his daughter is dead, he has to imagine, as anyone would, that the opportunity has come and gone. There's no, there's no way anything can be done now. Death is the final statement. And what does Jesus say to him in that moment? Do you remember? Do not fear, only believe. What he's saying to Jairus is, my power is greater than you know. I understand that you think death is the greatest thing there is in terms of power. It's got the final word. And I'm telling you that in my presence, death is like a nap. Which is why he says, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. And they all laugh at him. He's not mistaken. And there are professional lamenters there. They, they actually paid in that day and age to have people come and lament. So the weeping and wailing is actually not the mother and the father. It's these professional lamenters who are now raising up a lament because it's part of a, the cultural norm. And he's saying to them, they're no fools. They know she's not sleeping. They've checked. She has died. And he's saying to them, okay, you can, the commotion, can, we can bring that. We can stop that now because she's not dead. She's only sleeping. And he's not trying to trick them or make it a secret that he's gonna raise her from the dead. What he's doing is he's saying, this is how great my power is. Through a mere word from my hand, and a mere word from my mouth and a touch from my hand, I can reach down into death and bring her back up. Little girl, little lamb, arise. That's all it takes. That's how great my power is. So you see, Jairus believes in the compassion of Jesus. He'll come, I know he'll come. I can go right to him and ask him but he has a limited understanding of the power of Jesus. Do you see that, yes? Now flip it around. Because this dear woman, now again, understandably, because everything has failed, nothing has worked, and now she comes to Jesus, and she believes, if I only touch the hem of his garment, that faith in his power is magnificent. Now we don't totally know here whether it's sort of a, a superstitious kind of faith that would have been pr pretty prevalent in the ancient Near East, that, that great teachers, great he, you know, healing ministry uh, figures would, if you just touched them, that power would flow out from them. It could be that, but it could also be that she knows the scriptures. Because in Malachi chapter four, verse two, a prophecy of the Messiah says, the son of righteousness, talking about the Messiah, will rise with healing in his wings. And the word for wings there in the Hebrew is the same word that would have been applied to the hem of a garment because it kind of looks like wings, doesn't it, if it flows down. So similar words or uh, you know, cousin words, if you will. And so she might be remembering Malachi chapter four, verse two. This is the one. He's the one who's come with healing in his wings. And if I just touch the hem of his garment, if I just touch his garment, I'll be healed. Great faith in the power of Jesus. But how does she approach him? As one who maybe is a little unsure that compassion will be what she receives when she gets there. I'll sneak up behind him. I'll touch the hem of his garment. I know it's gonna make him ceremonially or ritually unclean. Uh, she doesn't know you can't do that to Jesus. But I'll sneak up and I'll touch. And Jesus stops and doesn't just let that happen where the power goes out from him and she's healed and he's not content with that. He says, who touched my garments? Because he wants to draw her out because she needs to believe not just in his power, but in his what? Compassion. He needs to show her. And what does he say to her? Daughter, that's a term of endearment. That's a term of affection. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. In other words, you, you can expect more from me than perfect power. 
you can also expect perfect compassion, unchanging compassion flowing from the very heart of God towards you. So do you see here that the contrast is meant to teach us both? And here's why that matters. Because when we suffer, when we're in trial, there are two things above all other things that we must cling to. It's that God is powerful and that he loves me. It really is as simple as that. In the midst of your trial, you need more than any other belief, these two things. You need to know deep down in your bones that God is powerful. You need to never ascribe to the idea, well, he would do something if he could do something. No, he is powerful to do all that he pleases and chooses to do. And he loves me. These are the two great beliefs that have to be clung to in the midst of suffering. Now let's go to that last thing and then, and then we're gonna conclude with song. What do I do? This story, you might be in here today and you're like, that's great because both these stories end with these people getting a change in circumstances as a display of compassion. But my circumstances have not changed. And I've prayed for 14 years, 16 years, 20 years. What do I do with that? To some degree, my answer might be somewhat unsatisfying because here's what I have to, here's what I, the first thing I have to say is this. I can't tell you why God changes the circumstances of some and doesn't others. I don't have the mind of God. And no one does. There's no one that can tell you, and if they try to, they're lying, why God would say, I will bring my compassion to bear in a work of healing in this person's life. Physically, they are healed. And why over here, I would remain without healing. No one can tell you that. I can't tell you that. What I can tell you is that when your circumstances don't change, it's not because of a failure of love and compassion on the part of God. We need an experience of compassion that is not tied to circumstances. What that means is this, is that there is an experience, and I believe this with all my heart, the scriptures testify to it, because God, again, the impassibility of God, he is compassion. He has compassion towards his children. All who come to him and fall at the feet of Jesus will experience his compassion. If that compassion does not bring a change of circumstances, it doesn't mean the compassion isn't there. So what that tells us is there's a way in which we can experience in the depth of our being the compassion of God that goes beyond the changing of circumstances. He will hold you and keep you and hem you in and refresh you in his love so that you can take another step and then another and then another. He has not abandoned you and not forsaken you. He does not break a bruised reed. He does not snuff out a smoldering wick. He is gentle and lowly. And all who come to him take on a yoke that is easy and light. This is who he is. So I can't answer why your circumstances don't change as a result of the compassion of God, but I can tell you that compassion is there and he will bring to you as you fall at the feet of Jesus an understanding of it and an experience of it that will fill you and keep you and hold you. That I can promise you because God has promised you The second thing I know and can say with certainty 
is that while your circumstances haven't changed yet, it is always yet because of the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. I don't know if the yet will come to a conclusion at the return of Jesus, at your being brought to him at the point of your death, or sometime before that. I don't know, but I know it is yet, not always. Because of the cross of Jesus, those circumstances will change. His compassion and love will bring to bear that change. At just the time he returns. I know that doesn't make it easy to live in, friends, but it is the truth. One thing I'll encourage you, please do not ever buy the lie from someone who is on the edges or fully in a prosperity gospel that says to you, you just need to believe more. Believe harder. It's your fault that the circumstances haven't changed because you haven't believed hard enough or good enough. That's wicked. It's insipid. And I want to guard you against it, okay? It's not true. Jesus invites us to great faith. But his work and the circumstances of our life and his bringing to bear, his compassion upon us is not tied to, I got to I've got to summon up this amount of faith and then this will happen. It's not good. It's not right. Okay. My prayer for you, for me, is that we would experience deep within ourselves God's compassion for us and that then we would yield ourselves to God so that we would express compassion towards others towards our neighbors, and towards one another in increasing measure. Yes, amen? All right. Let's pray together, and then we're gonna sing to conclude our time. Father, you're worthy of all praise. We thank you for the word that you have given us that reminds us of your compassion through your son Jesus expressed for us. And I pray that you give us hearts to receive it. We, we fully admit that it can be hard for this to break into our hearts, but we ask that you would be stronger than our hearts and that you would break through and give us a tenderness and an understanding of your compassion that we would know it is true because your word says it's true. So we thank you for it. We love you. And now we, we just wanna give you our praises in response. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.